Chris O'Reilly! Chris O'Reilly! It's time to start the show! We're talking Cinderella this week. And annoying mice. Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about storytelling, animation, and training household vermin to do your chores for you. Mm. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we are hitting part three of our multiple part canon in Disney, where we're going through the Disney canon through phases to go through the different parts of the full-length animated films put out by the Walt Disney Feature Animation Department. To recap, we've already done Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which kicks off the first like four or five Disney films, which are everybody's classics. And in part two of our canon in Disney, we talked about that period of like eight films that no one talks about and they're the ugly stepchildren. Yes, the, the part where Disney didn't have as much money and the a lot of the animators were out at war, so staffing was low, money was low, budgets were non-existent. The by the end of that period, which was basically the forties, by the end of that period, Disney was in danger of default. I, I was trying to think of another alliteration there. Disney, you in danger, girl. <laughs> you in danger, girl. So, so the studio was in big league, big danger, big, big danger. Um, <laughs> but through the third period that we're about to discuss, things get really, they ramp up like crazy. And they start off with a bang. So the first film in this series, we'll just do a list of the films that are in this, and you'll be like, oh, that one? Oh, that one? Oh, that one? I love that one. Oh, I love that one. You're about to do that as I list these. Ready? Except for one. Except for... No, all of them are perfect. All of Go them are wonderful. List. list your list, Chris. I, there's one weak point, which we probably disagree <laughs> about, but... We'll go from it. So Cinderella from 1950, Alice in Wonderland, 1951, Peter Pan, 1953, Lady and the Tramp, 1955, Sleeping Beauty, 1959, 101 Dalmatians, 1961, The Sword in the Stone, 1963, and The Jungle Book, 1967. Which coming after the last period we talked about, where it has like eight movies in 10 years, this is like the same number of movies in two decades. So it's surprisingly few movies from Disney, um, animation-wise, in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, the 40s, they were putting out a movie every year. And I will say movie with air (laughs) quotes around it, because it's going to be, they were doing the big anthology series, so... Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad and Fun and Fancy Free and Melody Time. All these where they were piecing shorts together to come up with 60 minutes of time to call it full length. And these are actual stories that last the full over an hour to give you a full story with a beginning, middle and end with characters 
and character dynamics and growth and villains and interesting things and music and song and, as I said, plot. They give you plot and character. There's a story where a character enters a new world of some kind and they try to do something. And in the end, they learn something, both about how to do what they want and themselves. (laughs) So this really starts off a period where Disney goes back to basics. And I feel like a lot of times these periods start with the rebirth, starts with going back to something that is foundational, which are fairy tales. It's like, wait, well, that worked with Snow White. Let's go back to, let's thumb through, you know, the Grimm's or go to other fairy tales and flip through and try to figure out what was pure about this art form and how can we get back to basics of story. And it's, it's really great that they did um, Cinderella in this period, because if Cinderella was a failure, uh, there would be no Disney now. They would have gone out of business because of the budget that Cinderella took to put on the screen. If it had failed, they would have, it was another case of they bet the whole studio on this. And I know we've said that a lot, that happens a lot in Disney history, apparently. It also happens again with 101 Dalmatians. Yes. To a certain degree. I'm I guess they, they weren't running out of money at that point. It's like Nintendo and the Wii. Like, they're not through their Wii money. It doesn't matter what they put out next, the Wii U. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to have a stockpile of money, a stockpile of Cinderella move money to keep them happy. But 101 Dalmatians, that's when the animation begins to change as we discover new ways to not just animate, but to make things quickly and cheaply. Um, but also well. Yes. 101 Dalmatians, they come up with the... This is another instance of Disney taking technology to work on their process and not just technology as a means of something looking neat. So I think we'll say a little bit more when we talk about 101 Dalmatians. So the two films that we took, that we plucked from this period are Cinderella and 101 Dalmatians to take a look at the different sides of this particular era in the Disney canon. So I think that gives us two distinct, I guess, voices that come out of this particular era. And they're very distinct. They're very, very distinct. Now, you also mentioned we have a weak point that we disagree on. Which, which one do you think I think is a weak point, and which one do you think is a weak point? Um, I think for you, the weak point is probably, if I'm looking through this, uh, Sword in the Stone. Yes. <laughs> I called it. Uh, yeah, that's my weak point, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it's, no, uh, it's no Black Cauldron. Um, but it's certainly a strange movie to know as a Disney movie. Yeah, it's it's a less lesser one in this period. Um, things go back to form in the Jungle Book, and the the reason why this particular period ends with Jungle Book is because the Jungle Book is the last film that Walt Disney himself had influence over while he was alive. So the Jungle Book ends 
the period of Walt Disney actually being part of Walt Disney feature animation. So, little little sadness there. When did Walt die? I'm sorry, get frozen. 67. 67? 67. I see what you did there, and I'm not acknowledging it. 1967. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, um, as a note here, in the middle of all this, Walt is doing, the whole studio is doing other kinds of experimentation with live action films. In 1955, which is the same year that Lady and the Tramp comes out, um, Disneyland opens. So that's a huge thing that's going on. So they're using the money from all these to try to fund new different ways of expressing the company. So expressing themselves, which they're still doing now, just different ways of expressing themselves as, you know, Frozen the Musical Broadway is opening on Denver and, you know, we have... New Disney on the other side of the world. New Disney theme park happening. Um, and purchase of Marvel, purchase of Lucasfilm. It's all all these things that just different ways of expressing story and character. And I'm sticking to that. I believe that, yes, they are a company out to make money. But I do believe that at the core, the people who are putting these things out now are really minded in character and plot. And I think the products show that. Well, it's also about how we engage with those characters and those plots over time. Like Disneyland opens shortly after Cinderella. And like, that's what we associate with Disney Cinderella's castle. Like that's what's in their logo. That's what's at Disneyland and Disney world. Like that's it's Cinderella. It is Cinderella all the way. Actually, at Disneyland, it's um, Sleeping Beauty's castle. Well, fine. I guess I got shown up by Chris. So, Disneyland is Sleeping Beauty, and then everywhere else is Cinderella's castle? Yeah, Walt Disney World is Cinderella's castle, and the other places, it's just Storybook Castle. Oh. Disney Castle number three, you know. (laughs) Other things like that. Isn't their logo still Cinderella's castle, or is it just generic castle? Uh, Cinderella's Castle, generally speaking. Okay. Yeah. Um, And now when they do the live action fairy tales, the castle at the beginning in the credits ends up being the castle of that's, that's about to take place. So Sleeping Beauty's Castle or in Maleficent and the Cinderella's Castle at the beginning of Cinderella and the Beast's Castle at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, the live action remake. So fun little things Mm. there that they're doing. If you're going to have a castle... Why not? Well, I can't wait for live action Aladdin then, because that'll be the first like non-European castle. Let's let's hope. I hope that they keep that pattern. And for Lion King, it'll just be Pride Rock. Would they do that though? Would they? It's a non-castle. In a way, isn't Pride Rock a castle? I mean, in a way, it is a but... lion castle. <laughs> lion <laughs> castle. So let's go back to talking about the <laughs> topic at hand. So. Again, Disney is experimenting a lot in this, but I think Cinderella is going back to basics in a lot of ways. So, Mackenzie, this is your first experience watching Cinderella. We did watch Cinderella 3 
a stitch in time or is it a twist in time? I think it was a, a twist. stitch in time. It was. Isn't a, it? I thought it was a twist in time. I feel like a stitch makes more sense, like contextually and dramaturgically, with what happens. A twist in time. What? Okay, fine. I admit defeat. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so there's also Cinderella 3, Twist in Time, which I guess is sort of dependent on Cinderella 2, but neither of us have seen Cinderella 2. No. Um, but if you have, after today's discussion of Cinderella, reasonable criticisms about how this movie's aged culturally, with its lack of protagonist female autonomy, with, her, with what her biggest dreams are, and what we know uh, about the prince being nothing, uh, watch Cinderella 3. Yes. And listen to our podcast episode about it, linked in the show notes. It's the rare case where the third film direct-to-video actually adds something to the original. It, it's like, yes, we know there were dram dramaturgical issues, and we will set out to fix them in this straight-to-video. <laughs> Here we go. Straight-to-DVD, we fixed it. <laughs> all, the all, the, all the quibbles you had, we took care of it. I'm okay with it. I'm fine with it. I think it, I was surprised at how well Cinderella 3 did, how much, how enjoyable it was. So let's talk a little bit about Cinderella the original. Cinderella Uno. Cinderella number one. So A lot happens in this movie. A, a lot does. So <laughs> they, as we said, Disney made a lot of money from Cinderella and it was able to take that money and develop other things. Um, side note, Peter Pan was going to be a live action animation hybrid, Oof. which I'm <laughs> glad they didn't do. I don't know how they would have done that, but I'm glad they didn't end up being that, but that was their plan to do with their Cinderella money to do a hybrid. I'm glad they didn't. So. <laughs> It's like winning the lottery. Like, what are you going to do? Like, I'm going to buy a car made of macaroni pasta. Like, you can, but why would you do that? <laughs> because I can. Its engine will be made of cheese. Sure, Disney. <laughs> sure. I like, I like Cinderella a lot, having seen it. I mean, at least in the context of doing this canon in Disney. Um, <clears throat> obviously, I've never sought it out to watch on my own before. I may have seen it when it was real little. Things were kind of like ringing like these bells way at the back of my mind. Like, whoa, what, what, is, what is this? This seems so familiar. And it might just be culturally I've seen it. But I think style-wise, it, it bridges a gap between early Disney and middle Disney. It's, it's got these really interesting to look at landscapes that are pieces of art that you could just stare at. Um, and they're super beautiful. And they have animal sidekicks, um, a la Snow White's Forest Friends, but they're also like part Donald Duck, like they dress in clothes and they say words, kind of. Um, yeah, I where I, I I don't this isn't a criticism movie. It does give us the bumbling sidekick like animation trope. I think this is really like the beginning of that, which has evolved or should I say devolved into things like the minions and all that stuff. The Jawas, like all the bumbling sidekicks that don't really speak words that I hate have, they come down a long line of like inbreeding generated <laughs> first here at Cinderella. 
So, so you would say that Jock the Mouse would one day become Jar Jar Binks. I'd go even farther than Jar Jar. I'd go with the Minions. Banana! Oh, yeah, uh, yeah it's, I, we both like, oh, PTSD. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like, yeah, I, I, I can definitely see that. I've, that. Yes, the Minions are the downgraded version of, of that. Hardcore, yeah, like without a doubt, that, that that movie of their own. I'm not even going to get into because it's off topic. But goodness, yeah, you do start to see that the mice of Cinderella go from funny and charming to really grating to just silly and magical and whimsical. I mean, they. They like the best sidekicks of Disney. You want them to be your best friend and you want nothing to do with them at the same time. Like, <laughs> it's like I don't like these characters. They're kind of annoying, but they're kind of sweet and they're bumbling and cute. When they're not talking, they're great. <laughs> I, I, or when they're talking, they're great. Yes. It's so, always the voice. So well, I think it, that, that's why they cast like the celebrity voices later, like with Timon and Pumbaa. Like they're, um, what's his face? In Mulan. Oh, Mushu? Mushu, yeah. It's your celebrity recognizable, like, fun voice the kids love instead of just, like, weird vocalization jocks the mouse. Yeah, it... You, at least you get some sidekicks with some personality mm -hmm. in this. Um, you get a lot of silliness and comedy from them that has nothing to do with the major plot. Yeah, there's a lot of like business with Lucifer, the cat at the beginning. It kind of felt like they crammed some Tom and Jerry episodes into the beginning of Cinderella. Yeah, they it's like they didn't know how to expand the story of Cinderella by giving Cinderella things to do. <laughs> so they said we, I don't know how to make Cinderella more interesting, but I have a silly thing we could do with the mice. <laughs> and we could spend 10 minutes on the mice collecting corn from the chickens and have that be fun and interesting, or at least fun. It feels like more than 10 minutes. Yeah, it's it feels like its own movie on its own. Like when I... When I Watch Cinderella again, because I had seen it multiple times in the past. Um, not as many times as my wife has seen it, because she knew all the lines. She's like, I forgot how much Cinderella was part of my childhood. <laughs> she said everything. I'm like, how, how do you have this movie memorized? <laughs> like, how do you remember all of this? Dr. Rochelle Wixaleva also has a magical memory when it comes to, like, quoting animated things, as we know. Yes, as we know from the past. But she... I, I had forgotten a lot, and the thing that struck me was this was basically the movie about the mice, also starring Cinderella, you know, <laughs> with appearances by Cinderella. The evil stepmother. This guy in a dress. Not really a dress, like a dress coat. Sorry, I finished my thought too soon. <laughs> my mind kept going, but my mouth stopped. <laughs> so... I mean, we, we all know, I feel, the story of Cinderella, but can we talk a little bit about 
Disney's take on the story of Cinderella and who Cinderella is and what the story is really about. Sure. I think you have more to say on this than I do because I'm honestly not too familiar with the original fairy tale Cinderella. I know the stepsisters actually like cut their feet to like try and fit into the shoe. Like one of them cuts her heel off or something. It's one like of them cuts her of toes shoe. off. Yep. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's really gross. And the the prince finds out that they're wrong because he finds the blood like coming out of the shoe. Yeah, totally. Like take that to the next house and let some other girl try it on with the blood in it. It's glass. It rinses off really easily. Uh, <laughs> dump out the. <sighs> bloody water shoe yeah you, I mean you get in the Stephen Sondheim musical Into the Woods they talk about cutting the heel off they they have the Cinderella and in the production that I was a part of they we put some stuff in the shoe so he could pour it out and Ugh. have blood pour out that was one of my favorite things of the production there are there were other things but I won't get into it on this podcast okay so <laughs> Um, I, I think Cinderella in this, as you were saying before, she doesn't have a lot of agency as a character. She has a want, which is, I, I don't want to be at this house anymore. I want to marry the prince or, you know, be, be a princess somehow, someday. And the, the idea of this passive heroine all comes from her theme song. It says it in her theme song, a dream is a wish your heart makes. So Cinderella be sleeping and that's like her dreaming and wishing. She doesn't even wish while she's awake doing stuff. It's she's at her most passive I'm asleep. My subconscious is making wishes for me. It's not her wanting actively. It's her just drooling on the pillow. Someday it's going to be okay. Someday I'll have a better life. And just because I dream of a macaroni-made composited car doesn't mean that that's something that my heart wants. (laughs) I'm just going to keep using this metaphor. (laughs) So it's, she's very passive in that sense. And, I mean, a lot of it comes from she is so far beaten down by her stepmother and stepsisters, which I had forgotten in my rewatching of it. I had forgotten that there was some backstory about Cinderella's father falling in love and then him dying and then her being mistreated by her family and actually getting some sense that there was something that happened before this, and then she just slowly lost her will to live, essentially. Well, it's like, I don't, I don't know. It's like she she doesn't like it, but she's, like, fine with it. I don't know how to describe it. She's, she's not, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, she's totally resigned that this is her reality, and that's all she's going to have, and there's no way out of it. So why not do it and she and in her mind and in the reality of the situation there is no way out 
there's no way for her to earn money. There's no way for her to be fine. There's no way for her to run away. Like, where would she go? What should we, sh what could she do? There's no money left. Um, the stepmother and the stepsisters have wasted everything. There's, there's nothing that she could do. She's completely powerless in this situation. I think in the 50s, it's like, yep, you might as well be resigned to it because what, what else is going to work? It's going to take, it'll take a miracle for her to get out of that situation. Uh, you're 22. You're just so, you're an aging widow now. That's what it is. Yep, Not you're widow. done. Spinster, spinster. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's a movie, not really of its time, but it's a movie that reflects its time to a certain degree, uh, which can be grating at points, <clears throat> but I think it's better. And I, I do think it's a little more acceptable because the prince is kind of treated in the same way. He's not a main character, but it's definitely like his, his parent wants something for him that is the exact opposite of what Cinderella's parent wants for her. Cinderella's stepmother wants her to kind of fade off and be on the side and not really like exist and have a life. And the prince's father, the king, uh, wants him to get married and live this life. So they're opposite ones, but it's both like meddling parents that are essentially driving the plot of this movie. I do appreciate the king, though, in that his desire is I want grandkids, I want to be a grandfather which is usually typically a feminine want that, mm -hmm. you know, a stereotypical feminine want of, I want grandkids. You need to get married so I could have grandkids. I mean, I never heard that from my dad. I only heard that from my mother. Now that you're married, when are you going to have kids? It's like, like the, the wedding just finished, mom. The <laughs> wedding just, this is not a question. Clock is for now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You've already kissed. Come on. <laughs> so Is there a shotgun at this wedding? <laughs> I'm interested. <laughs> so it, it, it's just trying to figure out. It, I, I just appreciated the king and his desire because it, it's not the characteristic king character. He was one. He was bumbling. So he wasn't an elegant character. Mm -hmm. um, he, in a lot of ways, he was the sidekick character with power. He's what happens if Pumbaa ever becomes king, you know, essentially. Or but a sidekick like that. He also had his own sidekick who was more bumbling. I know, it's like, it. it's crazy. Sidekickception. <laughs> when sidekicks get power. Wow. <laughs> Um, what was striking for you about, I mean, you talked a little bit about the style of things, but was there anything story-wise that struck you beyond the show being, the movie mostly being about the mice? There were the parts of it that dragged, which was surprising, like in my, I guess, cultural gestalt knowledge of Cinderella, I just kind of assumed it's like Cinderella is downtrodden by her family she meets a fairy godmother and gets a stress to go to the ball. If she meets the prince, runs away. The prince finds her. They get married. But it's also other like business that happens with it along the way that is just kind of 
doesn't really add anything, but it's entertaining to a certain degree. <laughs> Such as? I mean, I mentioned the business with the mice and Lucifer, and then, like, there's a lot of, like, King stuff and King's orders, like, plotting yeah. with his sidekick before the prince gets home. Um, and then, that- like... The, the king in the morning getting told the prince met someone, but we don't know who she is. She left. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the stuff with the king drags a lot because it's the same joke. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, he needs to give me a grandkid. He needs yeah. to get married. And it's just a very one note joke. So, yeah. But at least it has good songs. It does. There's lots of good music in this. Um, I think you made a note about Tin Pan Alley. Or did I make that note? I think you made that note. Okay. I don't know who Tin Pan Alley is now, but I made this note. Tin Pan Alley uh, wrote the songs for this movie for the first time. Like as opposed to, I guess, any other future Disney movies. This Tin Pan Alley group. Well, Tin Pan Alley is essentially like the people who are um, doing Broadway time so it's like broadway musicians coming up with make making these songs and making them like musical standards that could actually play on you know on the screen play on broadway on stage so songs that could exist for themselves on the radio yes as this one did because bippity boppity boop became a hit single four times Disney said this brilliant idea, like, you know these musical numbers we put in our movies? What if we, like, marketed them as pop songs? And that's why everyone can sing Disney songs, because this movie, they had this great idea, and it paid off really well. So in a lot of ways, Cinderella starts that of the music is just as important. Mm -hmm. If not a little bit more important in some cases... I'm looking at you, Jungle Book. Um, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm definitely looking at you, Jungle Book girl. Like you, <laughs> your music is like way above your story, girl. Uh, I think it might be the source material there. That's right, I said it. Um, other musical stuff in this movie, I read a note that Eileen Woods, who played Cinderella, yes. I believe so. Is that the right person? Yeah. Eileen Woods played Cinderella. Um, in some documentary later, like, recollected how she had to sing harmony with herself for Sing Sweet Nightingale. Um, and supposedly this is the first documented use of this technique, even before the Beatles did it and made it popular. Hmm. <laughs> what do you know? I mean, it, it's a lovely sequence where she's, you hear the stepsisters, quote unquote, singing sing sweet nightingale and then cinderella is cleaning and in her own world of um comforting herself in her trauma and she's washing and the bubbles show the different versions of herself and then you're essentially hearing her voice through all these versions of herself sing it's a really evocative moment um that's really sweet and strong. And as you made a note, Walt Disney's favorite animation that ever came out of the studio comes from 
Cinderella. What moment is that? It is when the fairy godmother turns Cinderella's rags into that beautiful silver ball gown. Originally silver, red condas blue. <laughs> In later releases. In later releases. I mean, it's, it is a gorgeous shot. Um, some of the animators are like, really that? But I think it just, it's just a surprising, delightful moment. The transformation. It's a nice surreal moment. And it kind of feels like it draws directly from the previous part two of Canon and Disney, where they're experimenting a lot with what can be done in animation. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically that some of the surreal stuff they do in Three Caballeros. Sure. Um, and turning one set of rags, one thinly layered set of rags on a character into like this flowing ball gown is certainly a very surreal thing you have to envision and then figure out what that looks like as you animate it. And as a viewer, you buy it like, okay, those rags turned into a ball gown. Got it. I have no questions about how that happened. Mm-hmm. They stretch, they pull, they just manifest. And it's not that... It's just a, they just appear. It's, it's a transformation. You feel the transformation and there's no cut away. There's no trick or it's just, it's just a easy flowing transformation. It reminds me of a flower that blooms. If you watch like a, uh, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Time-lapse? A time lapse of a blooming flower. That's kind of what the dress transformation looks like for me. Hmm. And maybe that's what they were thinking of. That I mean, it does feel. Uh, that's exact. That's spot on. That's a spot on comparison. So Disney moving from their past, trying to redefine the future, and then something like 101 Dalmatians happens. <laughs> so they go from. <laughs> They go from Cinderella and Fairy Tale to Alice in Wonderland, which reading Alice in Wonderland again, they did they follow the book pretty closely. They cut out a lot, but they follow the book pretty well in Alice in Wonderland. It's surprising how well they actually follow it. Um, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, which classic. Um, Sleeping Beauty, which I feel is the evolution of Cinderella, where you take, you go all in on art mm-hmm. because they, they actually stylized things and, you know, the Mary Blair artwork became more enhanced and it was just gorgeous. It made it look like a medieval artwork and flat paintings and it's a striking visual style that we don't see again really until something like Hercules, where you take the character design and really change it. But then after Sleeping Beauty, we get 101 Dalmatians in 19... And we hear what you're saying. Like, why? (laughs) Why thematically would we go to that? So 1961, what's going on here? Like, how do we go from that lineup to suddenly 101 Dalmatians. I mean, this is certainly all speculative. This is based on a book, isn't it? It is. 
I think it's they're kind of like moving more into like well here are classic stories let's talk more about contemporary stories mm-hmm. um, and it is the first Disney animated movie with a contemporary setting not right. counting like the live action parts of Three Caballeros right this is this is the first like real movie <laughs> yes this is um, a Disney film that takes place in the late 50s it's like it's it's now it's now now of then <laughs> I just really confused myself so they, they were making a story about the current time period back then yeah They're, it was modern at the time <laughs> it's very modern at the time and it might have come back around with hipsters now. Their apartment looks like a very hipster apartment. They're into, like, analog music. What's up with that? Playing piano? Not on your laptop? <laughs> and they have dogs, so you know they're hipsters. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and Dalmatians, which feels yeah, very hipstery. That's expensive, like, hipster state dog. <laughs> it's polka dots. He smokes a pipe, too. <laughs> it's the Jackson Pollock of dogs. <laughs> So, as we were talking about the technology coming through in this, the biggest technology that helped save the studio yet again (laughs) with 101 Dalmatians, because they spent a ton of money on Sleeping Beauty, and it shows, because that was actually done in 75 millimeter. I mean, you if if you didn't see it, if you watched it on the old VHS with pan and scan, you have to watch it now again on Blu-ray slash DVD to see the 75 millimeter because that, that it's huge. It's a giant tapestry, which is exactly why they did it that way. But it was more expensive to do. And so uh, they lost a lot of money on it. It was not as popular as other things. Um, so the technology that saved it was Xerox, which is weird to think that the Xerox machine saved Disney studio. Well, it saves a lot of time and money. And this is a big thing. This is a big change that happened in marketing too, at the same time, because apparently I'm a buff of like marketing supplies and how you did marketing and graphic design. Um, but yeah, so this is what Xerox you're like, why Xerox? It's so you don't have to redraw every single bit and every single thing. If you have a scene where, and again, I'm going to show like how little about actual animating that I know as opposed to storytelling. Um, if you have a scene where one of the dogs is like sitting on its haunches on the floor and turns its head, you could do Xerox to copy the rest of the dog's body multiple times. So you don't have to redraw that and just draw the head turn. And make it look natural, not like the body's a Scooby-Doo background and the head is like this lighter colored like thing layered on top. <laughs> but it also adds the dynamic of cha- saving time um, because here's, here's the process. So you would take, if I were one of the animators, I would draw that, as you were talking about, I'd draw Pongo in his pose. And then I might draw a little rough just to get the idea of life in there. And then I would do that 
24 times or, you know, as many times as drawings as I need to make up that action. I would hand that off to the cleanup artist. The cleanup would put a piece of paper on top of each drawing and clean it up. They would take it and clean up that drawing so that everything was on model. So maybe I did it a little rushed because I had to get the drawing done and maybe I didn't draw all the fingers, maybe I didn't draw the toes, maybe I didn't, but you, you know what's there. You get the idea of the movement with, and the characterization, the acting, which is more what it was about. So the cleanup artist would come in and draw that. Then that cleanup, cleaned drawing would go to the ink and paint department. They'd put a cell and they would paint the cell on top of that drawing. So now here are all these steps just to get to, I have a cell with the outlines and actually painted on there. And now I can go and take it and get it photographed. With Xerox, the artist does their drawing. The cleanup person goes, does on the same drawing. They Xerox that onto the cell and then they paint it. So the outline is already there, which is why you get a lot of the black outlines um, from there. You could actually see the sketch line from the first artist. So you might see the guidelines that they draw. So the things that show the center of the character. Mm -hmm. So they're uh, what you would call construction lines. So, and I know some of the later releases have tried to clean up some of that stuff. So you may not see it. As often, I don't like that. I don't like them cleaning that stuff up. That was there and that was present. And I always felt like I was watching something that was drawn. Like that's the time when you get to see the work starting yeah. in 101 Dalmatians on through all the way through to something like Robin Hood, which is in the next period. And honestly, like, I don't think it was intentional. I think it's just a fortuitous lineup, this kind of sketchy look that they've gone for all their backgrounds and the characters. You can see the guidelines that works with the jazz scene that they have in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think it just fits all together so well. I think it's one of the reasons it's well received as opposed to like, Oh, Disney's taking a step down animation. It's yeah. not like that at all. It, it seems uh, like a stylistic choice. Yeah. And definitely parts of it they use in the background to make it a stylistic choice. They have a lot of suggestions of objects in the background. Like there'll be a full line sketch of a book that is just like a blob of yellow instead of actual detailed colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it kind of melds their character sketches and the style and technology together very well. And obviously later things like Robin Hood, they don't do that. No. Once they've gotten a better hang of Xerox and making it less sketchy. And, but I do th also think that 101 Dalmatians is the first time when they're going really graphic and they're looking at the artwork of the time period and actually letting that influence. And so instead of looking backwards towards, let's make it look like a medieval painting or back to Cinderella and doing like the backgrounds, they were like, well, what's going on around us? <laughs> instead of looking backwards, let's look to our left and right and see what's going on and Copy kind of the work animator with next that. to you. Yeah. yeah, work work on that, you know, what's happening. And it worked because 101 Dalmatians was the highest grossing film of 1961. Period. Period. Not animated film, film. No. Film, highest grossing film of 1961. 
And I think a lot of it has to do with just how fresh it is. It feels really, really fresh, even watching it now again. It's like there's something really cool about it. It feels you feel cool watching it. Like I when I saw Ocean's 11, <laughs> I was I was just like I feel like a cool person. I feel like I robbed the casino. I was really you feel like uh, a really cool person watching 101 Dalmatians and it's awkward that it's a Disney film cuz Disney films Typically, people are like, "Oh, you're not cool. You like Disney or whatever," but nah, you were you were you were with it, man. I probably sound nerdier than I meant to in that whole sentence and statement, but I think we're once again drawing a lot of personal Chris Leva experiences. <laughs> I have a lot of trauma to draw on, <laughs> but um, like any good writer, <laughs> State Farm is there. <laughs> Ah, I shall discuss this. But I, I think it's it just feels really cool, and the music is fun. I mean, it doesn't have any... I mean, there are, there are like three songs in the whole film. It's not a musical, per se. Cruella de Vil, like, three times. They have the um, Dalmatian Plantation at the very mm-hmm. end. We'll have a Dalmatian Plantation. Let's sing a song about that so we could have an album. But, but really, Cruella de Vil is the only song, and it was popular. I mean, everyone knows Cruella de Vil. If you've never seen 101 Dalmatians, you could probably still sing Cruella de Vil. Cruella de Vil. Something, something. Something, something. It rhymes with Vil, that last one. <laughs> nobody will. Yes, if she doesn't scare you, then nobody will. Got it. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's another classic. Um, I think this movie also surprisingly, this is one I did see as a kid, and rewatching now, it's kind of surprising like how it meandered a bit to get to its point. There's the whole business of like the dogs like, carrying the message for like seven minutes, like into the countryside. That's a really long sequence. I forget how long that sequence was. Yeah, it goes on. It's like we're sick of drawing Dalmatians. Give us some other dog breeds, please, for the love of God. <laughs> What's also weird is I feel like this was the first Disney film with cameos from characters from other Disney films. Oh. So you I didn't ha- catch any. You had some of the dogs from Lady and the Tramp during the Twilight Bark. So the dogs that were from the, um, what's it called? From the Pound. She was in the dog, in the dog, um, the pet store. She was there. Um, yeah, the Scotty dog also from Lady and the Tramp. You had the Dalmatian kids painted as different dogs in there. So, like in the pet shop, you have the puppies that are the Dalmatian mm. puppies, just painted like black labs. Ah, uh, got it. So they just repainted them a different color. They they were from. They were obviously from the scene where they're barking at the TV, but they got Xeroxed and reused, uh, which was another benefit of Xerox. Um, also, Lady was in there. Lady from Lady and the Tramp was in there as well. As a I did cameo. not see that at all. 
So it's the first time that Disney's like, yeah, we, we know we've done several dogs. And remember that dog movie we did a few years ago? Here they are again. In case you forgot, <laughs> we're franchising. <laughs> so there's a lot that made it fresh. Uh, the story, I, I do enjoy the way the story starts off. And it, it doesn't feel like a movie for kids at all. Like in the first. Yeah. Like it's really heady in the first few minutes where you have Pongo the dog narrating, but you don't know it's Pongo the dog narrating. You think it's somebody, but talking about their pet and it turns out to be the dog. And it's a and his pet human and his pet human taking for a walk so he could fall in love and trying to decide what woman the two of them should go after. And it's just no, like, not that one. No, no, not that one. No, not that one. It's a very, it's the only thing that's funny for kids is uh, that that woman's dressed like her dog. Like that's, <laughs> that's about the only funny thing that happens and that the kids would be interested in. And the love interest falls in the pond. A kid would laugh at that. Well, that's yeah, a little bit like the physical comedy, but yeah. the whole reason why they're going to the park and the way it's told is just, it's really, really adult. It's not really about kids. And it still confused me, you know, as a kid growing up, the whole plot about Cruella DeVille and if she was actually involved and like, that was really complicated about her kidnapping the puppies, but making it not look like it was her, but also like, like that whole setup of her plot to kidnap these puppies to it's turn a them into very, a coat. I feel like her, her plot is very elaborate as a villain. Yes. Like why not just start her own puppy mill for Dalmatians? I feel like that'd be a lot easier. Yeah. And legal. It's still cruel, but legal. You, you don't have to, yeah, you've already obviously stolen almost a hundred puppies. Ninety-nine, to be specific. Well, no, she she had kidnapped. Bef I mean, before you don't need these other sixteen puppies to make up your ninety-nine. Yeah, how big is this coat? Maybe she wanted a couple and a dress, and like I, it's a little bit. And she wanted puppies because of the softness of their fur. Her yeah, you could have just stolen like five regular sized dogs. <laughs> I, I think maybe maybe uh, the older Dalmatians have coarser hair. Maybe somebody on Twitter could let us know. You know why is why Dalmatian puppy fur? Why ninety nine Dalmatian puppies? <laughs> She's got ninety nine Dalmatians. And a code. And they're eight. all boys. And they're all boys. So it's her plot is interesting because it's just confusing. <laughs> the one thing that they do get right in this is suspense. Like the yeah. like the whole thing where they're trying to get away. I think of the sneaking out part. Oh yes. Yeah. I, and they're, I, I do love they they get in the soot and they color themselves and they take a couple of puppies at a time. It was just like, okay, this is really stressful. 
And she just keeps driving back and forth and back and forth looking for the dogs. It's just like, okay, we'll take two or three at a time, two or three at a time. How many trips do we have to take to get 99 puppies into the back of this truck? It very much felt like it was like a, like a World War II, like, homage kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, like, we're going to escape, and it's like this dreary snow, snow-dropped, like, European landscape <laughs> with strange-accented villains after us. And then the snow starts melting and dripping on a couple of puppies, and that's just so good. I, I just remember that being really, really stressful as a kid. Like, oh, gosh. They did it really, really well. Mm-hmm. And then she goes off, and they have that car chase, which is thrilling. And uh, Yeah. It, that car looks computer-generated. It does. It's so well done. Do you know why? It turns in correct proportions. Oh, no, why? They traced it. Is it... Um, Rotoscoped. It is yeah. rotoscoped. It's a it's a model okay. that they made and that they drew over and um, made that car so because it was a cool looking car, but to keep it in perspective in all the ways that, that it turned, like I remember at, even growing up, I was just like that car. It just looks too perfect. Like how did you? It looks like a real car, and because they traced it, they had a model of it. That they put in the certain positions that they needed and traced over it, and voila, Corella Mobile. Corella Mobile. Corella Mobile. <laughs> if it doesn't scare you, it's not a big deal. <laughs> not a big deal. Um, so here, here's the question that I have for you. Shoot. So looking at those two sides of this particular Disney era. Disneyra. Disneyra. What are you? What do you notice about the two sides? You know, Cinderella to Sleeping Beauty, One Hundred and One Dalmatians to Jungle Book. Well, they're clearly getting back into story, and they're figuring out what story is and how to tell a good story. Because um, they've done their experimentation, like every good sophomore through junior in undergraduate college they've listened to the professors they're like but why does it have to be aristotelian why do i have to tell one story i'm going to do something different and they learned their lesson and they came back to like telling what a good structured story looks like <laughs> <laughs> that's disney part three that we're talking about today so there's a lot of story um i think the progression in this era this disney era it's Trying to find a story towards the end that appeals, I think this is a struggle. They're trying to find a story that appeals to all the demographics they want to go after, all kids. Because a lot of the big blockbusters so far, I think, have been what they traditionally call, like, girl movies. And again, this is not me saying they're girl movies. I think that's just, like, what their marketing would have billed that as. Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty... 101 Dalmatians is definitely more what a marketing department's idea of a boy is interested in friendly. Mm-hmm. 
And you even see that in the current age, they're kind of going back and forth like princess movie, action movie, princess movie, action movie. Never together. They're trying to get elements in each one, but it's still like primarily one or the other. And they're just switching back and forth now. Hmm. So that's, that's the evolution that I see there. I don't know, Chris, do you see other evolutions? Yeah, I mean, I see looking at them all in a list. What's interesting about them is Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan even though it's called Peter Pan, um, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, you have women who are the main characters. Mm -hmm. Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Wendy is definitively the main character in Peter Pan. Yeah. Lady and the Tramp, um, Sleeping Beauty, women. Females all, in, all as the main character. 101 Dalmatians, Pongo, is the main character ish. Yeah. Um, Just like the puppies as a the whole. The puppies as a whole. Sword in the Stone, male. Jungle Book, male. After Jungle Book, you get Aristocats and Robin Hood, male, male, male. It starts to become a little bit dominated by male characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's just because of the stories that they were adapting and just deciding, or if they were trying to reinvent things and get a different audience. I don't know. But that's just an interesting fact that all that's one, two, three, four, five with um, female protagonists and then three with males as we start looking into the next period. But I think what they started to do in the 60s is, as we were saying, look around themselves and see what was going on around them and be part of their time and not part of something earlier. So, I, and I appreciate that because you could feel that, that, hey, this feels current, even when they're doing Jungle Book, the music that they're doing is music from the 60s, even though it's a period piece, which yeah. is, which works, question mark? I don't know. It feels very weird. Um, Sword in the Stone, the music, they tried to mimic the past a little bit, um, but the style was updated, but you get Jungle Book and, and then in the next period you get Robin Hood, where it's just like, we're, it's a period piece, but it has music from now. I think my specific thought in Sword in the Stone Wall is like another period piece. I think it's trying to match a lot of the, the early 60s, that boy adventurer thing that was going on, especially in animation. Sure. That's what I see from it anyway. Definitely. So, so there's still some experimentation, but I think once we get past Jungle Book, as we'll see in the next part soon, not next time necessarily, but what we'll see. Part soon. <laughs> part soon. And part four, we'll get to see what happens after Walt. And... After Walt, pre-Renaissance. Pre-Renaissance. And it's a, it's a dip. It's an interesting period. 
but everyone has a favorite from this period and that that favorite's always different there's no like general consensus i think on like the best or worst of the upcoming period we're going to talk about yeah this this one is like the new classics the period this this period that we're in right now that we're talking about is new classics you could list off and everyone is going to have two or three that they go oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah that one that one like for me it's you know, Peter Pan, 101 Dalmatians, and Jungle Book. Like, those are the, th- there's like three in here. And Lady and the Tramp just has beautiful business, and the animal artwork is great. You know, you have your favorites. There's a whole slew of them right here. It's just new classics. It's like, oh, yeah, of course those, those are Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Um, next period gets a little bit different. I go, yeah, Robin Hood. Forgot about that. That's that was a thing. That was a thing Including that they made. My favorite in the next period. My favorite Disney movie, pre Zootopia. Fox and the Hound, which uh. does not feel like a Disney movie, but I love it. <laughs> so Mackenzie, from this period, these two things that we watched. Do you have a favorite thing? Um, I also I do really like the dress transformation that Walt likes. <laughs> I, I like that. I also like the car chase a lot. Um, and I like the car. I'm not sure. How, I would have to do the research on how they animated it beyond. Because you mentioned the, the tracing over for the car, which is why mm-hmm. it looks so good. And then once the car begins to fall apart. Yeah. And it's just a surreal, like, Corella like, devil on wheels sequence. Like, are they still tracing that? It's just a fun bit. As <laughs> Corella's like, uh, with a steering wheel on wheels. Nothing yes. else. <laughs> Do you have a favorite thing? Um, my favorite thing from these two ones, uh, I'm trying to think and see if I can remember what it was I had. I think for me, it's just that the the whole sequence of them trying to escape. I think for me, that's just so well done. It's so suspenseful and it's so satisfying because you have a feeling they're going to get caught. You don't know how. You don't know when. And then the moment you see the first drip happen, you're like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. And it's just so, it's just a ticking bomb that's mm-hmm. there of somebody's going to get found out. One of those puppies is going to make a mistake. So, And then it's mine. Mine! <laughs> As Corella would say. So next time, in honor of October, we're going to talk about something that is very fall-focused and didn't come out this year or the year before. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about 2014s? Yes. That sounds right. 2014's Cartoon Network miniseries, Over the Garden Wall. Not just one episode. It is a miniseries. There are five episodes, a.k.a. ten chapters, of 11 minutes long five like episodes you can buy through various digital things if you want to um i do encourage you to watch it all because it is one nice self-contained thing or if you can't watch it all uh watch like the trailer or clips or whatever you can find like on youtube awesome as always we want to say thank you to nigel Coutinho, our engineer and thank you to jacob reed for our theme music you can find us on Twitter at WG Animated if you want to share your favorite new classics Disney movies. 
Um, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash WGAnimated. And you can find all of our show notes and links to other classic and Disney episodes on writersgetanimated.tumblr.com. You know, I forgot, uh, this just popped into my head, I forgot about how annoying that Canine Crunchy song was from 101 Dalmatians. I've already repressed it. That's the jingle that he's writing, right? No, it's the one they're watching on TV. Canine Crunchies can't be beat. You brought it back. You had to unlock that door and let it out. You're welcome. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.